Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. Today, my guest is Kevin C. O'Leary, author of the book Madison's Sorrow, Today's War on the Founders and America's Liberal Ideal published this year by Pegasus Books, out now in hardcover and on Kindle. Welcome, Kevin. Hi, Kirk. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, I'd like to uh, just uh, to let our listeners know uh, where you're joining us from. I am coming from Trinidad and Tobago. And I'm coming from Irvine, California. Okay, great, great. Uh, We'd like to start off uh, our interviews normally by asking the authors, you know, if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and particularly in relation to the subject of this book. Sure. Um, I'm both a political scientist and a journalist. Um, I earned my bachelor's at UCLA and then went to Yale for my PhD. And that was a wonderful program. And, you know, I, I wrote an earlier book that was, you know, kind of about American idealism, about um, how we could improve participation in politics using the current structure. And that book's called Saving Democracy. And this book, um, you know, my background is as a political scientist. I had studied democratic theory uh, with some of the greats, uh, Robert Dahl and, and, you know, some really great professors there, Charles Lindblom. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also interested in the breakdown of democracy and study with Juan Lentz. And I've always kept in mind, you know, kind of the two things. Um, and I've become an Americanist and, um, and also political theory. Um, and, and the background that went into this was um, just kind of watching American politics. And uh, I've written about it as a journalist for uh, time. I was a lead West Coast correspondent. Um, uh, during the during the Great Recession, um, and I was an editorial page editor before that, and, and different different journalistic things. And so I began this project, kind of looking at what was going on politically, both as a political scientist and as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it struck me that what was happening with the Republicans, um, and this is before Trump showed up, was they were being much more hardline with uh, the Democrats, um, and there was a big difference in my personal background, I had been lucky enough to be an intern uh, with Tip O'Neill way back just before the Reagan era started. And um, I noticed that Tip, uh, you know, a Massachusetts New Deal liberal, worked with Reagan when Reagan got elected. He did not try to block everything that President Reagan tried to do. And that was so different from when Obama won his second term. He won both elections by a substantial amount, not quite a landslide, but not narrow victories either. And mm-hmm. the second time around, McConnell and the Republicans just 
just decided they would brick wall everything um, and continue the Tea Party revolt. And that struck me as as very different. And as you watch American politics, the Republicans kept going right. And that's how I got into the project, um, just kind of trying to figure out what was going on here. And um, Norm Ornstein and Thomas Mann had written a really good book, um, It's Worse Than It Looks. Um, other people had gone back also to the 60s to try to figure out what's going on with the Republican Party. Um, and that's that's the germ for the book. I just tried to, I decided I would dive into that. Also, uh, um, living and working in Orange County, which had been one of the bastions of, of Reagan conservatism, um, but now it's evolved a lot so that all the districts turned blue last election cycle. Um, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out what some of my neighbors were all about. And as a political scientist, I knew about F.A. Hayek and I knew about, you know, the, the Southern tradition in American politics, but I'd never spent time seriously looking into that. And that right. was my curiosity. That's what I dove into. That's your neighbors there in Irvine, is it? Yeah, my, I mean, just, just in, the, the, the newspaper in Orange County was famously libertarian. Okay. Um, and, and I was actually invited to write some columns from the liberal side for them. And that's, right. okay, that seems pretty normal. But then uh, that didn't quite work out because they were so hardline. <laughs> Unlike, say, like the Wall Street Journal, which would accept things. They just, they just yeah. had hard, and it was like, why are they so hardcore about this? Interesting, interesting. So, so let me ask you, uh, so the title of your book, Madison's Sorrow. Can you explain that a little? What is Madison Sorrow and why is it important? Well, it's twofold. Madison Sorrow is if the founders were looking down on what's happened with President Trump, they would be deeply sad because um, uh, he's the most unusual president we've ever had. And he does not uh, look back uh, to the Constitution uh, as others have. And he doesn't approach the job in the same way as, as President Obama has made clear um, in his recent speeches. And so that's one, that the founders would be deeply disappointed about what's happening uh, with President Trump and his approach to politics. But also a second meaning that's important is that what I came to find as I worked on this book was that American politics has always been about liberals and conservatives. And American conservatives are a little different than the breed of conservatives you might find overseas because they buy into the founding. And in that sense, they are deeply liberal philosophically. And so um, my thesis of the book is that um, American politics works quite well if it's liberals and conservatives who buy into um, the countries based on liberty, equality, and democracy, all three of those things, and that we're a middle-class society. We're, we're not a society based on the rich. And it, because they could agree on ideas, they could quarrel about public policy but still come together and still compromise. But if one party, and that means in terms of Madisonian democracy, we have a complex constitutional structure, but it's fragile. And presidential regimes are, are unusual around the world in, in having them work well. Um, most other countries are parliamentary democracies. Mm -hmm. Ours has worked well because the two parties are somewhat close ideologically. They're under the umbrella of what I think is Lockean liberalism, and I'll talk about that, my, my interpretation of that. Mm -hmm. And what's happened in American politics, if, if you get an extreme, if one party goes 
far to the right or far to the left. And in this case, it's been the Republicans marching to the right. Maybe not to, you know, I, I tried to stay away from the word fascism mm-hmm. on purpose, um, but it certainly wasn't conservative anymore. The leadership, the donors, um, the base, the, the Trump base is not conservative anymore. And I said, no, let's, let's use the terms that have been used for um, politics overseas for quite some time, illiberal and reactionary, that that's what we're seeing. And so I think American politics is fundamentally divided into liberals, conservatives, conservatives being basically voiceless, and reactionaries. And that's Madisonian sorrow in this second sense, that Madisonian democracy breaks down when one party goes to the extreme. Uh, that That's uh, very interesting. A lot of things uh, I'd like to unpack there. Um, so let's try to do it um, bit by bit. Sure. Uh, uh, well, one is about the idea of, uh, I, I suppose, the founding fathers itself, and 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 you know what what their vision was, because that that's been an active debate uh, for a very very long time, of course. And I mean, you you have a chapter titled "Our Imperfect Founders," and I mean, you know, there were you know some serious splits. Within, uh, you know, among the founders in, in their debates, um, with various, uh, you know, uh, d- debates about federalism and so forth, and then even over time later on, uh, let's say for example, um, a black radical critique, uh, which would have been, you know, that listen, they were all slave owners, and 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 the foundation of of the United States is is, um, you know, this is a fairy tale. Right. Uh, view, etc. Right. So, so we have these. Uh, so, so let me uh, ask you to just elaborate a little about you know what you talk about in the chapter of our imperfect founders. Yeah, and let me just step back a little further. To I start the book with a chapter on Locke. Yeah. Um, as as I think he he imagines America before it's here, and Locke's important. Um, both because what I do at the beginning of the book is a bit of a polemic on my side, writing as a liberal. I mean, I spent most of my career as journalist, political scientist, and not taking strong sides. I've been fascinated to watch things. And, and I decided to write this book the way I have and take a stance because I think things have gone deeply off the rails. And one of the polemical arguments is that's out there from reactionaries and some conservatives, say like a George Will type, who has abandoned the Trumpian party, but, you know, Will and some others have claimed that the progressive movements um, at the start of the 20th century, the progressives and then the New Deal afterwards, the New Deal state, um, is, you know, antithetical to the founding. Um, And so reactionaries, say, like Senator um, Lee from Utah, have tried, have written books and tried to claim the founding as as theirs in the sense it's minimal government it's about liberty that's what it's about it's a republic not a democracy that kind of argument. kind of a yeah almost a libertarian kind of yes view. right yeah. and so i go back to the founding and i said hmm and i i'd been fortunate to have um rogers smith as my advisor at yale now he's a pen of course um and his first book was a book about constitutional law and he had an interpretation of 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 Locke that I ended up going back to, and I read other scholarship about Locke. And it turns out 
Locke's centrally important, not because of the idea about property rights and consent in the second treatise, but Locke is centrally important to our founding in my way of reading it, because his famous um, epistemology, the, the uh, essay concerning human understanding, his big philosophy book, which starts out relatively simple and then gets more complex as it goes along. And it was a bestseller for two centuries, which is like it, mm-hmm. just crazy, but it, it was really, really important. The germ of that book is that we all think alike, and that was something that feudalism didn't accept, so that a serf in the field thinks just as competently and maybe better than an aristocrat or a king, right? And that seed, 100 years before the French Revolution, almost exactly, right, um, mm-hmm. 1690 to, to 1789, that is the seed that's as radical as anything that Robespierre or Lenin ever did. And that helps and set in motion, along with the ideas from the English Revolution, uh, what happens in America. And what we did was this. My, my, my fundamental premise in the book is that following Locke, we said we are going to set up a new world. And that the old world we're leaving behind is about feudalism and an aristocratic vision of society You know that's worked <laughs> – uh, it's been the, the, the basis of, of human societies across history. And there's been, you know, episodes of democracy. Um, and let's do it again. And when Europe was about a feudal society, aristocratic society, based on four values, based on a protection of privilege, hierarchy, radical inequality, and exclusion. Those are the values I see at the core of the old world. The Americans following Locke said, let's set up a new society that's based on liberty, equality, and democracy. And that's the vision that Tocqueville sees when he comes in the 1830s. And that, I think, is the vision that animates the founders. So now let's move to the founders. And even one last thing. Recent scholarship on Locke shows that he was not a racist, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Even recent books continue to say that Locke helped author the Constitution of the Carolinas. But we found out recently um, from a historian Brewer at the University of Maryland that Locke, um, as he got older, was more radical and he pushed for changes in the Carolinas um, and in Virginia on the slave issue. And we should read his authorship of the Constitution of Carolinas as if he's a lawyer working for clients. And it's not his, not his ideas he's, he's selling there. Um, so now to the founders. If you look at the founders themselves, Jefferson obviously is flawed, right, uh, because of owning slaves and never, never being able to get past his racism. Um, some prominent scholars on, on the American founding say he's, in his own ideas about America, is right there with Thomas Paine, but Paine was more complete because he was an abolitionist. But Jefferson's really important because the Declaration, his most famous writing, um, he had a paragraph in the original version, because he's the drafter, that um, blamed slavery on the English kings. Now, that was ahistoric. It wasn't accurate. But as a polemical shot, it would have undermined slavery at the beginning. Now, of course, the Southerners, the South Carolina delegation wouldn't put up with that, and that got X'd out in the final version. But Jefferson wasn't finished. An important way to read um, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness, 
is that he chose not to do the lock-in formula of life, liberty, and property. But pursuit of happiness um, was celebrating our participatory spirit of politics, something Hunter Rent talks about. And in not using property, he takes something away from the slave owners, right? So he's radical there again. Secondly, Madison is a strong liberal in two respects, I argue. Um, he comes up with the whole, um, he, he has the plan for the Constitution going in. He sees the need that we have to move, that the Articles of Confederation won't last and the country may break up. He deeply wants something that's seriously in our faces right now, which is the inequality of the Senate. He wanted the Senate to be proportional by population, but he wasn't able to get it done. So, you know, kudos to Madison for trying. Number two, he worked very hard to make sure that slave, slavery, and property and man, those phrases did not get into the Constitution. He saw them as state issues, and by segregating them to being state issues, he allowed the door open for Lincoln to come along and, um, you know, at the Civil War time and argue that the Union could be against slavery and, the, and the, you know, the Cooperstown, uh, Cooper's Union speech uh, that Lincoln famously makes in 1860, where he does just that. Um, and so I argue that, yes, the founders are flawed, um, but, you know, uh, Thomas Paine is way ahead of the game. He argues, yes, in common sense about liberty, about governments being evil, but he's he's critiquing monarchy. That's the government he knows at the time. When it comes later and in his more developed vision in Rights of Man, he talks about he has a vision for like a new a New Deal society, uh, 150 years plus before it happens. He talks about let's have if you if if. If government comes from the people instead of being imposed from above, as in monarchy, then the people can decide what they want to do. And there's no limit on what you can choose the society to do. And in that situation, we could have progressive taxation, and that would help us fund a situation to help the elderly when they've worked hard all their lives and now they need some social security, and to help widows with children when through no fault of their own, uh, the man of the house dies and they can't, they're struggling and they need help. And he says, why don't we help those two elements of society? And why don't we help educate the young so that they can have, you know, they can work and they, you know, and things don't go badly for them and society. So again and again, you can find liberal, a liberal vision in the founders. And I, I argue that that liberal vision from Locke and the founders goes straight across American history from our, across our progressive presidents all the way to somebody like Obama. Let, let me um, add one other thing since you, since you did mention it, um, you know, th this kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, a backward projection onto the um, founders. Mm -hmm. So, so we have this sort of, um, you know, African-American critique going back. Then you have um, uh, Christians, who you know say that this was you know that these were fundamentally pious Christian men founding a Christian nation. You have libertarians, basically saying these were you know uh, early libertarians. Um, yeah, how how do you uh, deal with uh, you know all, all these um, you know shaping of of the founders as as uh, as, as to what they really were? Uh, is it uh, do do you see 
Uh, do you see these as legitimate type of in- interpretations or fun- flawed misreadings or, or totally off? Uh, how, how do you see that? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And I'm not arguing that my interpretation is 100% right, a- accurate. It, it's an argument about the founding. It, it's, but we're lucky as a country that we're able to turn to our founding. It's, it's one of the things that helps bring us together and, and glue us together as a country when we're very cosmopolitan. Um, and to have these founding ideals. So, of course, there's going to be fights over it. Um, yes, and I can understand the critique from African-Americans, um, right? Because but at the same time, when you look at the scholarship in a recent book, you know, really nice book, um, The Framers' Coop, uh, about the whole constitutional debates, um, you know, many people will argue that Maybe the founders could have tried more, but it, it was going to be hard to, to piece the country together at that point in time and 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 try to get slavery rid of slavery at the start. I mean, if, if the whole thing would be like if the founding happens two decades later, it would have been a much more democratic document. Um, so it, it, it's 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 shaped at its time from the Christian point. I mean, Locke's philosophy is is deeply Calvinist, right? Um, and so I don't think the Christian interpretation is is all wrong. Um, but also because of the English Civil War, um, the Americans wanted to make sure that there was a separation between church and state. Um, so, you know, to see the founders as Christians and overdo that, I think, is a mistake. And I think the libertarian argument is the one I have the most concern about because you can be an originalist in different fashions. Right. And so maybe I'm an originalist in a different fashion than the Scalia types. And I think that is a that is a forced interpretation to say the minimal government that we have at the beginning of the country when we have basically the population of where I live. Orange County has basically three million people. Mm-hmm. And to say the found the start of the country, we have three million people and now we have three hundred and thirty million things are going to happen. You're not going to keep exactly the same structure of government. Um, and you're not going to do things exactly the same way over all that time span. And so the progressives were bold enough around the turn of the century, 1900, to say, let's change something. Let's change it and make senators a direct election, right? And there's other things we could look at the Constitution and say, as in Robert Dahl's version, that they're they're deeply undemocratic, and we could try to correct. Maybe someday we'll get rid of the Electoral College. but we have to do it piece by piece and, and when we can practically politically. So I, I, you know, in your point, I think there's other ways to read the founding, but I, I think the way I'm reading it is a, is a strong version of the idealism of the, of the founders. And yes, they were flawed. That's why I say that. Right. Right. Now there's a, so there's an important point uh, you made about um, the, you know, the democratic, system or the Republican system or the, the system of American government uh, works um, well works best and I'm not sure if you mean only works but when when certain principles are adhered to uh, in, in, uh, liberal principles now on I mean th- this has been I, I don't know how far back it goes but certainly um, uh, Marxists and socialists, have have kind of said the same thing, but from a critical point of view. That you know, there's no difference between the Republicans and 
and the um, Democrats. They're both, you know, upholding the capitalist system. And today you have, uh, not even just today, let's go back to, I guess, the 80s or 90s, like Pat Buchanan and mm-hmm. sort of isolationists and saying, oh, you know, there's a uniparty. They're both, you know, warmongers, military industrial complex, uh, uh, liberal um, types too. And, and progressives kind of have that, you know, it, there's a lot of uh, overlap. You know, they, they, you know, talk about a uniparty and, and, you know, so, and so you'll find like, you know, maybe greens might talk about that and, and other stuff. So, so there, so this idea of the uniparty, um, they are heavily, heavily critical of, uh, and you on the other hand are saying that, uh, you know, uh, this is foundational to the Republic. So that, that's an interesting, uh, you know, other view. I want to push it. back. I don't want to say it's a unit. I'm not saying a uniparty. I don't agree that the two parties are the same. And they're certainly not the same now. And but if you go back, there was an. Ex- put it this way. I think it's accurate to say there's. Think about Bruce Ackerman's work about constitutional moments. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have the Civil War. You have something like um, the New Deal, and at those points, participation surges and. People make a choice about the direction of the country. Maybe we're in one right now, right? About how far this reaction, what I call reactionary revolution, will go. And in that case, in the 30s, right, Dwight Eisenhower looked at that and he said, I'm not going to push back. I'm not going to say that the New Deal is all wrong. I'm going to, I'm going to modify some things, but I'm going to accept the basic structure that Roosevelt has put in, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be a good conservative and work from there. Um, so I think the two parties are distinct. I don't want to put them. I don't go to the point of saying that they're, you know, Tweedledee, Tweedledum. There's 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 real differences between the two parties, but they're workable, right? The differences between the parties are workable because the conservatives in the American tradition. I'll, I'll put it this way. Let's put it this way. The difference between illiberal or reactionary on the one side and a conservative on the other. Conservatives defend the Constitution. Illiberals do not. Look at what's happened during the impeachment debates. Look at what has happened with the elected leadership of the Republican Party during Trump's time in office, when again and again, the president has pushed beyond constitutional, he's pushed past constitutional barriers and, and the rule of law. Number two, conservatives believe in government. You know, the Burkean tradition, Alexander Hamilton, Eisenhower again, um, Teddy Roosevelt, um, you know, um, Robert Dole, the first President Bush, all of those are conservatives who believe that government is a fundamental, essential thing for a modern society, especially a national government. And the pandemic is like proof of this. And illiberals do not. Illiberals fight against a national government. They do not like it because it's powerful, and they would rather it was not there. They would rather, the reactionaries, would like to go back to the 1890s, when the government was basically courts and parties, in Skronik's term, and the post office. There wasn't a lot of the national government there. Third, I would say conservatives in this tradition are committed to racial equality. The Republican Party is founded by Lincoln and others against the slave South, but Illiberals are not committed to racial equality in the same way, and they're more willing to let somebody 
um, like a Donald Trump, use the racial card that was developed by the Southerners back in, um, you know, the Jim Crow era before George Wallace. They're they're happy to to use that to, for some politicians to use use that to get power if it's going to help them get power and do what they want to do. And some of them themselves are fine with with the old ways of seeing race, and they do want to make America great again in the sense of going back to the fifties. So on those three things, I think that illiberals and conservatives are quite distinct and quite different. Um, and I do want to say my you know I see. I see differences between Republicans. They want to, you know, they want to spend less. They're they're less assertive about using federal government power to solve things. Um, but if if liberals win a big election, they're not committed to blocking things totally. If if, if society is going to develop. And you, final thing on this, you just can't have a, on the libertarian thing. You just can't have a modern superpower government. Um, with without a welfare state, um, and you you can't have a superpower and a massive economy the way we have, and and pretend that you can have this minimal government from from uh, the founding of the country. Yeah, you, um, it there's a point I want I'd like you to elaborate on a bit, and that's when when you're talking about the liberals uh, and um, and the difference with uh, conservative Republicans. And I mean, as you rightly say, the, the Republican Party is founded on the abolition of slavery, um, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and, you know, and for, you know, right up to the civil rights era, I mean, the big segregationists were Democrats. Right? And, and the people right. who, uh, I mean, and the civil rights movement was essentially against Democratic governors, dev- Democratic mayors and police chiefs and Bull Connor and, and, and all these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it's interesting that, um, you know, the, the illiberals uh, span both parties uh, in, in that sense. Is that something uh, you want to comment on? Yes, because that's, that's kind of the, the, the one of the key parts of my book is to say mm-hmm. the illiberals in the American experience, we were fortunate that there's two strands to the illiberal part of our brain. And that's the Southern racism that's always been there. And unfortunately for us, at the end of the Civil War, the greatest mistake in American history was that Thaddeus Stevens was going around the country for two or three years saying, we need to break up, we must break up the large plantations in the South. He wasn't so radical, nor was Lincoln, nor was Grant, to say we should, as would have happened in other countries, take the leadership of of the Southern Confederacy and put them on trial and execute them. We didn't do that. We said, no, it's, you know, we're, we're still Americans. Go back, go back to your home. But like, you know, he was right um, to say that we need to break up the plantations because you had to change the economy and you had to change, especially the political culture of the South. If you had, if you'd broken up just the biggest plantations and redistributed the land to poor whites and poor blacks, that would have changed the culture in the South. Instead, it ends up as not just a racist society, but the, an authoritarian one-party dictatorship throughout the Jim Crow era. So from 1865, exactly 100 years, to 1965, until John Lewis and Martin Luther King come along. But what happens? The other sliver of our DNA, in a sense, that's illiberal, that looks back to Europe as, oh, let's have a caste-based society. Let's have a you know, society where there's 
people on top and people on the bottom doing doing the drudge work and they are discriminated against. The other strand that accepts that is the libertarian, the hardcore libertarian element of our thinking that came into prominence in the late 19th century with the Supreme Court decisions and, and the business class running things came first from Herbert Spencer, whose Darwinism is a savage social Darwinism, even before Darwin from Social yeah. Statics is his book and other things. And then it goes to Ayn Rand, I would argue, famously, the novelist whose novels seem like they're John Wayne um, soap operas, uh, but they're deeply influenced by her crude reading of Nietzsche, mm -hmm. um, which is a very dark reading um, that modern scholarship doesn't, doesn't, doesn't accept. And then third, F.A. Hayek, who wants to say we've got minimal government or we're going to have a totalitarian hell. That, that part of our brain was in the Republican Party. But as books have pointed out, the Republican Party in, in 1960 was, was a broad tent. You had Teddy Roosevelt progressives on the left. You had moderates. You had Midwestern conservatives like Taft. And then you had a, a right wing, which was the John Birch Society, which was William F. Buckley, which was Goldwater. And those people embraced this radical anti-state, anti-liberal, anti-radical anti, um, you know, libertarianism. And then there was um, the Rockefeller Republicans, like the liberals almost. In a sense. Yeah, but they, they were eliminated. And, and what happens is by one point, Goldwater wins California primary in 1964, right? The big 1964 election. And my book starts with a scene from that time mm -hmm. that's important because what happens is those two elements that we were fortunate to have them in separate parties that, so that the segregationists, the, 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 um, the white South, right? That's a, it's a strong element of Roosevelt's new deal coalition. Yes. It's an element that like Ira Katz Nelson has pointed out how they were able to twist um, interpretations of affirmative action, et cetera. And I, I fully understand that um, at the same time, they didn't dominate totally the Roosevelt, New Deal Party, they were a voice. And similarly, the libertarian side, the the, uh, the William F. Buckley that hate the New Deal types in and and the right wing of the business class that's in the Republican Party, they're an element of Eisenhower's party, but they don't run the show completely. Right? Those two pieces come together because of civil rights. The irony of civil rights, they come together. There's a sub. There's a, of course the Southern strategy of Nixon and Reagan over time, but the Southerners are looking to make that alliance sooner. <laughs> the the intellectual Collins, who's behind Strom Thurmond, talks about it in the late forties in, in a in a book called Wither the South. And George Wallace is right there in nineteen sixty four. And what happens is the two wires cross, and you could see it as a cinematic moment. It's the start of my book. Mm -hmm. George Wallace. Um, sends uh, a guy named James Martin to see Barry Goldwater the day before the Republican convention. It's a Republican convention and Goldwater's going to get the nomination. We know that they meet in what they thought was a secret meeting on top of the Mark Hopkins hotel in San Francisco, overlooking the San Francisco Bay. It happens to be recorded by a life photographer who's on a different building and they give a cover story. Oh, Senator Goldwater is just fascinated about ham radios. No, the meeting was all about James Martin telling Goldwater that George Wallace, a Southern Democrat, wants to be 
Barry Goldwater's vice presidential running mate. And Goldwater's dumbfounded, but he understands the wisdom of it. And Wallace really was ahead of his time. He understood from his travels around the country um, that that would be a powerful coalition. And it has turned out to be a Frankenstein monster um, because those two elements, the white South, the racist part of the South, and the libertarian element, they find when they get together inside one political party, they could take it over. And the tragedy of American politics the last 50 years has been moderates like Howard Baker from the Nixon era to Bob Dole in the Clinton times uh, to George H.W. Bush and even to George W. Bush. Um, those kinds of conservatives are gradually forced out such that John McCain is dead and Jeff Flake has been purged and people like um, Congressman Dent in Pennsylvania retire. And that that voice of conservatism, of traditional conservatism, has been read out of the Republican Party. That the elected leadership, to get elected in Republican politics now, you basically have to toe the line. And if you're not completely illiberal, um, you can dance a little bit uh, and you know try to say, I'm not completely on board with this. But to have the donors back you and have the base back you, um, it, it's tough. Unless, unless now, if we if we have a a meltdown by Trump in this election and the Biden people are able to win in a big way, then maybe the Republicans will rethink things. But that coalition within one party, that's a new thing happening in American politics that we don't think about enough because that has that's what's happened to American politics. That coalition, that sinister marriage, as I call it, within the Republican Party, that's what's led to this reactionary revolution that really took off. I mean, it was simmering. Reagan, I argue, um, unlike you know liberals like Bill Maher, when I blame everything on Reagan, I see Reagan as kind of yes, he's very conservative. He's got reactionary elements because he he actually understands Hayek. He he read more than people give him credit for, but he was a liberal at heart in the sense of being raised in a household that wasn't racist, and he worked with progressives in California and then in Washington D.C. And when they said, let Reagan be Reagan, he was the Reagan he wanted to be. He didn't go as far as the reactionaries wanted to. But when you get to Gingrich in the 90s and that speakership, when Newt takes the speakership, then the revolution, this reactionary revolution against the founders. And not only it starts, you know, it's obviously aimed at the New Deal state, but it becomes a reaction, a reactionary revolution against the founders that accelerates. And then it's I I just want to. Just ask you something, you know, because I don't think Newt Gingrich himself would see it as a reaction against the founders. I think right. in his mind, he sees it as a fulfilling that the Democrats have perverted oh, yes. uh, vision. You know, so so it's, it kind of goes back to the to the contest uh, over, you know, what did the founding fathers really mean? You know, and and it's 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 almost like you know quoting the Bible. Anybody can quote it for anything they want. You know. Um, how, how do you uh, see that? Do, do, do you see that? Um, do, do, do you think that that Gingrich, for example, is insincere and that he is actually really against the founding father? No, that's a very good question. Do I think he's insincere? Um, here's what I think about Gingrich. Um, I think he's an opportunist. Um, and he didn't start out in his political career far to the right, but he saw an opportunity. Um and the donor class 
really wants to have, you know, uh, epitomized by um, the Koch brothers, um, really want to have a minimal government. And they'd like to get there however they can. Um, with Gingrich, okay, so I think he's, he's insincere. I think he sees an opportunity. Um, in another day and age, he would have been, you know, a, a conservative fighter. But the second strong element where I have problems with him and think of him as strongly a liberal is not just is more about his tactics and his um, viciousness against the Democrats, where he makes them the enemy. If you, you know, look at Schmidt's writing from the, the Third Reich era, the, the famous political mm-hmm. philosopher, and you talk about having us versus them mentality, mm-hmm. Gingrich you know, not that he's thinking about that, but he picks up that we want to make the Democrats the enemy. And if you look at the rhetoric that he promotes in his memos to his to his his followers, this is the way we'll take power in the House. We should demonize the other side. These people are un-American, right? They are yeah. traitors and just just lacerate liberals as something anathema to American society. That is a deeply illiberal reactionary stance. And he starts that. And the party we have now is the the Republican party now is not the party of Reagan. He wouldn't have done it that to that degree. Yes, he used race. I mean, he was able to use race for his, you know, his surge to power. But Gingrich demonized the other side to such a degree. And that's, that's the party we get yeah, I, 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 I see that. That sort of demonization of the Democrats as an existential threat oh, yeah. to, to the nation and the founders, or, you know, whatever his vision of what the founders meant was. Right. Yeah, that, that is where, where, in other words, there can be no compromise. Right. Uh, there, there, there can be no working together with traitors, essentially. that That's basically... Yeah. Right. And, and think about this. Right after Gingrich's coup, he doesn't last that long, but he's deeply influential, right? So then you get Karl Rove and George and George W. Bush come to the White House. Well, they talk about being, you know, compassionate conservative and Bush has worked on the immigration issue. He sees where the demographics are going. But Karl Rove decides pretty early that they can, the Republicans can win elections just by amping up their base. And that's yeah. part of what's, it, it fits in with the Gingrich strategy. Let's just demonize the other side and stoke our base. And then you get the whole Fox News talk radio phenomenon where you're able to have kind of your own media network to people. And then it just continues. Yeah. And then, and then it becomes like the 50-50 nation thing mm-hmm. where it's like two different worlds. Right. Um, and we're stuck. Yeah. Two different, uh, you know, uh, so th- this is an interesting point because, I mean, I think, you know, the Democrats kind of have, may have reached, I mean, ha- I think they've reached that that point as well where, you know, th- there can be no compromise um, with the Republicans, with Trump and so forth. And it's like two warring factions in, in a civil war almost. And, and there just seems to be no space for dialogue. Um, right. Between- I think on some issues there's not. So if you think, when you have one party who wants to put children in cages at the border, right? The last time we did that was a civil war where you separated families. And now they can't find some of the, you know, the parents of some of those kids, which I think that's just incredibly awful that the American government has, has done that. Um, 
at the same time, look at what Biden's trying to do. Biden's trying to go back to the traditional way of talking to the other side. And he's trying to say his Gettysburg speech was excellent. He's trying to say, look, we can get back together where we can have disagreements, but we don't feel like the other side is the enemy. But that's mm-hmm. that's not who we are. We don't have to act this way. And that um, the Trump type political types, that's their their main tactic. They want to divide. They want to divide. They want to divide. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's an interesting um, point uh, you have in your kind of historiography, which we can uh, – I'll deal with the point first, and then we can actually deal with the history, which is important. But but as part of your kind of historiography, you're, you're talking about an ignoregnum, an interregnum, sorry, right. after Reagan that Obama failed to fill. I, I think it's a very interesting concept uh, around which you organize, you know, the, the history. Uh, can you explain that a little more? Yeah. Um, that's at the end of the book. I just say where we are right now is that, and I'm picking up on, on Stephen Skronik's work um, um, about the presidency. I think he's right, but I think there's a gap in his, his way of thinking about it. Um, and, and, and the, the, the strength of Skronik's vision is to say, look, we have this Madisonian system. Not every president is going to be a, a titan. But there are these titans. There are these founder types. And they are exceptional politicians at exceptional moments where the country needs to head in a new direction. They set the agenda. And that's an FDR. And Reagan fit that pattern where they are the, you know, the giant figures who then cast a shadow in the next two or three decades. Um, and most of the presidents who come after them are followers. And even the presidents in other parties have to kind of bow to their vision. So Eisenhower bows to um, Roosevelt's vision. Um, and I don't think he was upset about doing that. Um, and Clinton more with a little more hostility he would not he did not want bill clinton did not want to be under reagan's um shadow but he was i think that's right but then you get to the end of george w bush and i think the whole reagan era just collapses because you've got too much too much negative going on the whole thing i think crashes um between iraq between katrina and between especially when you add in um the financial collapse and uh, greenspan coming to congress and saying my whole vision of how the markets work and that the markets can just do everything themselves it just fell apart um his mea culpa was like i think the death knell for reagan um the reagan era um, and so I then see Obama having a, an opening to be a founder, and he tries. He does like a half of a New Deal in Theta Scotch Poll's uh, nice uh, summary of his work. But he doesn't. He's not able to speak to the middle of the country and bring enough people over so that six out of ten Americans say, "Say you are the majority party." So what I see the last twenty years, in a sense, being is since since well not 20 since 2008 is that we've been stuck in a situation where both parties are strong they're both like the minority party trying to be the majority party and they won't accept leadership from the other side and that trump like obama is a president who's being attacked by the opposition um 
and there's been no breakthrough. And that makes it difficult for the president to lead the country when they when when you're not when you when you don't have somebody who's come up come in and kind of set up this founding vision, then then politics in, ends up as this, as this kind of day to day war. Um, yeah, you know, it it kind of it it parallels very much my my interpretation of the Middle East, for example, after the end of the Ottoman Empire and the Caliphate, which we're living through right now. It's just a cacophony. Because um, you know, there's no uh, caliph anymore, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so all all those uh, little forces and and splinters, which would have been sort of suppressed by by the uh, you know by the, the ultimate rule of, of the ruler, mm-hmm. are now allowed to you know uh, have their own countries and movements, and and it's just chaos in the region. And it sounds to me that it's it's a similar kind of situation that that you're describing where America is at right now, where, where there's no unifying vision and there's just all these warring factions all over in this kind of almost um, kind of, yeah, I don't think of it as, as a lot of factions. I think there's two warring factions, right? right. The Republicans won't admit to being, if you, if you, the metaphor would be kind of like one party's the moon and one, one party's the sun and then the other party's the moon, right? And, and in the 30s and 40s, the Republicans are definitely the moon and and after carter's defeat the democrats you end up with reagan democrats the, the democrats mm-hmm. know they've got to rebuild and the republicans didn't come to that realization or they thought they could just keep going um and maybe they maybe it all burns down this time maybe it just keeps going um I, so in addition i mean that's that's my view of the presidency is is kind of a, a a small point toward the end. I think it does fit in with how you, you're seeing the Middle East. Um, right. It kind of helps explain why we're in this kind of chaos. But more fundamentally is I, I see, you know, this this idea of America as enduring and being in the midst of a, re, a reactionary revolution. And the way I see that is to say our liberal revolution is atypical for, you know, revolutionary periods, say France or Russia. Um, where they happen in like 10 to 20 years. Our liberal revolution always stayed in a moderate phase and we never became radical. We never had terror. We had bloodshed with the Civil War, yes. But the leaders on the liberal side never um, tried to purge their opponents um, you know, physically and, and put people right. in jail or anything like that. And we've done it by protests. We've done it by litigation. We've done it by politics. And we're going to do it again right now with these long lines of voting, that's that's the liberal side of America showing up yet again. You know, from the women's march to the people standing in line now. On the reactionary side, I think that the you had, you can put it this way, you know, that that the um, you know the, the clash. If America, I mean, I tell the story of American history in this book as a story yeah. of a struggle between our liberal ideal and illiberal resistance. That's one way to read the American experience, and the clash between the two peaked in the Civil War and the Progressive New Deal era, right? Um, so Lincoln's time, and then Teddy Roosevelt and Wilson and and um, FDR, but it's remerged in the post Gingrich era with reactionaries united and powerful. And that goes back to my saying the meeting on top of the Mark Hopkins Hotel and that now the yeah. two illiberal strands are inside one party. So, so let, let me get this, this clear then. 
So because in, in the book, you know, you talk about 1964, that, that meeting as the birth of reactionary America. Mm-hmm. And um, so um, now, but be, before, so before that, um, the, the, the uh, so what, what makes that uh, different from the struggle between, you know, liberal and illiberal America before that? That, the, is it, that it wasn't institutionalized and, and now it's institutionalized in a single party? Is, yes, that, is that that's the, really important that they can take over one party and make it totally reactionary. Before, right, the New Deal of FDR is not totally reactionary. Yes, right. they have the white settlers. The, the Republican Party of Eisenhower and, and even through Nixon and even somewhat to Reagan, it's not yeah. a reactionary party. We only have two parties, right? In Europe, it'd be simple. Trump would have started a third party and he would have run and he would have grown. Here, to take over one of the two parties and because the Electoral College, you can, he can, you know, to, to, he can win the presidency with 46%. He doesn't have to get the 50%. So it, it's saying that, yes, there was illiberal elements of our culture. There always have been. Um, and, you know, and they've wreaked havoc, but we have our experience over time as to has been this, this wave of since Lincoln, right? This move toward inclusion from the women's, you know, women's right to vote, which may save us this election to the civil rights era. And, you know, along with the blacks, it's, it, it's, it's um, Latinos and, and, and Asians. And, and now what's happened with gays, you know, all of this saying this is a society where we include people. And, and the reactionaries have gone back strongly with Trump and from Gingrich on, but, you know, super strongly with, 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 with Trump to saying this is a society about, um, you know, two things. It's about white privilege and it's about protecting the liberty of the wealthiest to do as they wish because they are rich. Therefore, they should be able to do as, you know, they should be have their freedom unlimited and the rest of the country doesn't agree with those two things that that's not what we're talking about but that's 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 the push from the right right so yeah so that's that's a very uh important point then so you're saying that the the liberal and liberal liberal strands existed mm -hmm. throughout throughout the history but but they were dispersed as it were Exactly. And, then, and they came together and they've gotten stronger and stronger and they've been able to, you know, the party that we have now of Trump, the party of Trump is not the party of Reagan and the party of Reagan certainly wasn't the party of, of when Nixon got elected in 68. Nixon was quite liberal on domestic issues. Yeah. All right. And it's just evolved. So we've, and why has the party kept shifting further and further to the right? Yes. I mean, there's other people like E.J. Dion, you know, and um, Paul Pearson, up at Berkeley, um, that talk about kind of choice points and, and you continue to make the choice to, you're, you're Boehner, um, and you come to this choice, um, do I support uh, Rubio and George W. Bush on immigration and try to get this done, or do I get scared of the power of Ted Cruz and the Tea Party and this racist, um, uh, you know, Congressman King from Iowa, and Boehner decides, I'm not going to try, right? He plays cautious and he doesn't push back against the right. And so then, it, you know, think and Romney, even when Romney runs, you, we see him as kind of a more moderate conservative guy. But on, on immigration, um, he both times ran for president. He was hard on immigration, very hard. Um, yeah. So it's just, you know, 
it. Yeah, I I, I see the point. Now th- there was a, a reason. There's also another book uh, published this year, and I I interviewed the the author earlier, uh, Spencer Christie, the Patriots of Two Nations. He he has a a, a similar kind of uh, you know project, let's say, of of looking back in history to understand the present moment and and talking about the two Americas and 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 um and he he describes it basically it's a, you, you know it's the same phenomenon because i think you're describing an, an objectively true phenomenon so but but he calls it uh, counter enlightenment versus the enlightenment mm. but uh, <laughs> and and uh, so taking berlin's term and so forth uh, and uh, like the kind of uh, blood and soil patriotism and and uh, as no, opposed I, to the, I think that's important I, I talk Sorry? I think that cause, I mean, American foreign policy from, right, the end of World War II to Trump, right, is based on America finding allies around the world who are cosmopolitan and capitalist. Yeah. And and that's what we are. And so, you know, uh, Michael Ignatiff's work about, about um, you know, really nice work about cosmopolitanism versus blood and soil. We never thought we'd have a politics Based based on blood and soil, but now we do with with the Trumpist effect, yeah, um, yeah, and that's new. Yes, it may have existed in the South, but Southern politics say, you know, until Kennedy's brilliant um, speech in 1963, there was a Martin Luther King speech, there was George Wallace, who I should talk about a little bit more, and Kennedy's speech a couple of months before he dies, where he says, you know, race is a moral issue for the country, and for before that. It's it was seen as a regional issue, right? Yeah. And Kennedy said, "No, it's going to be it's a national issue. We have to deal with this." And Johnson says, "Yes, we have to deal with this." And he knows Johnson knows he's going to blow up the Democratic Party, but he thinks it's the right thing to do. Well, let, let me ask you to uh, elaborate on George Wallace, if you said because he, he's a fascinating figure. In terms yeah, of- and and one of the, I got excited about this book when I started reading about Wallace and the South, um, and like like a lot of. You know, just a lot of you know Americans who are gone to college, and you think you know something about Reconstruction and the South and slavery. And I learned a whole lot more working on this book. Yeah. Um, and I had an epiphany when I read about Wallace, which was when he gave his famous speech in 1963, where he's um, he, he's, he's taking the oath of office to become the governor of of Alabama. And he uses that famous line of segregation now, segregation forever. And that's the line that people remember. But the importance of that speech is that he doesn't attack blacks explicitly. He's talking, he knows, to a national audience, not just Alabamans. And things are changing. And he's you know, fighting against that change. But to fight against it, he makes government the villain. Mm-hmm. And I argue that what... Wallace does in that speech and the rest of his career is brilliant from a tactical view of politics. He sublimates the racial rage, which was a central feature of Southern politics. Race, everything about Southern politics was about race. Um, and there were no issues, as, as, as one judge told some a, a Northern observer. There's no issues in the South. It's just about race. So Wallace sublimates racial rage into rage at government. And there's a straight line from Wallace's rhetoric in that speech and his career to Rush Limbaugh, to Fox News, 
because after the 60s, you know, it, it's not politically correct to, um, you know, um, belittle uh, a, a black person, right? You can't be explicitly racist in, until recent years, right? The last couple. But that's it, it, not, it's not looked on as what you can do. But you can be terribly um, animated and, and uh, opposed to government. And everybody knew what Wallace was talking about, right? This is about the big government of Washington that might dare to help minorities. Um, and so that rage at government helped connect Wallace's rhetoric, his career. He helped connect this radical libertarian anti-government ethos on the one side with the white supremacy of the South. And there's an irony in that because he was a New Deal Democrat. He did a lot for actual Alabamans. His mentor, Jim Folsom, was not racist a bit. And Wallace followed in that career where he built a bunch of community colleges and he did a lot of New Deal type projects. And then even at but the end his, of his life, his rhetoric, uh, his rhetoric yeah. go ahead. And by the end of his life, uh, his his um, his final political movement was, a, I, I think, in, like an independent movement that had um you know uh that it was interracial or um i, I can't remember it exactly but but it, it was a you know it, it, it's it's a, a kind of uh you know it it's it, it, an unorthodox heterodox kind of a way he you know mix mixing it up with opportunism here and there and mm -hmm. i mean it was a kind of a, a, a strange often unpredictable mix of stuff that w Wallace uh, was always uh, dabbling in. You know? Right. And so, you, you know, you end up with, uh, you know, Strom Thurmond and Wallace at the end of their careers and even Atwater, right? They all regret mm -hmm. Atwater on his deathbed. They regret their racism, right? Yeah. But they used it when they needed to get power and when it was a political tool. Um, uh, I came upon something late when I was writing the book of about Pat Buchanan, because we mentioned him. So the three thinkers on the libertarian side I mentioned, um, you know, um, I, I mentioned those. There's another thinker that's more recent than than Hayek and and Rand, and and that's who's important for our current moment, and that's uh, Samuel Francis, right. who was a, an intellectual who supported um, Pat Buchanan in his runs, and and Francis we can you know give the credit if if we want to. For the for the idea about the flyover country and uh, you know mm -hmm. kind of middle America that Trump has exploited that, that whites in middle America are being ignored and it's not it's not a financial class that's ruling the country it's this managerial elite um, that Francis picked up from earlier books and he pushed that and he's a really smart guy um, but at the end of his career he um, got two too racist and, and was read out of kind of respectable circles. But his ideas um, helped influence Buchanan. He told Buchanan to go to go to New Hampshire and talk about yourself as a patriot, talk about nationalism, but don't call yourself a conservative. Um, right. It's uh, the rhetoric of of, uh, of Francis is is all around us now. Now. Um, yeah. Here's one thing I want to ask you too about where about where this sort of leads because um, let, let's say in in Spencer Critchley's book his his thing was that you know the the, the two factions of America uh, have to um, have to reconcile and 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 he 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 goes through a lot of things about like 
um, you know, about the counter enlightenment, how, you know, it has influenced the arts and music and, and, and all sorts of things, romantic movements and, and that there, you know, there's this critique of liberalism that, that has a lot of validity and, and so that both sides need to look at each other and understand each other, etc. For, for my reading of, of, uh, of your book, it's, it sounds almost like uh, that what you're proposing is that you have to suppress a liberal America, that they are really un-American, which, uh, you know, which sounds kind of, you know, like it's, uh, I mean, pushing for a kind of, you know, a, a civil war or, or like we, we need to keep this. Is it, am I intolerant of illiberals? Yes. Yeah. Because if you look at the breakdown of democracies, yeah. Um, the authoritarians often use democratic apparatus and democratic norms that they exploit more than than their uh, opponents do. And they take advantage of the forms and the traditions to gain power and then they shut the door. So right. the, the, the reason I, I, I play hardball against – I mean I, I argue at the, right at the beginning of the book, the first line of the book is – a friend of mine had written me an email, a conservative friend, and he said, I think the Enlightenment Project is dead, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And I'm saying it better not be because America's based on Enlightenment ideas and ideals, right? That's at the core of who we are. And I can accept that, you know, that there's been pushback against the Enlightenment and critiques of the Enlightenment. But if we decide to junk our whole approach to politics from the Enlightenment as being flawed and we have to start over, we're in deep trouble. There's, I think there's much more of value in the Enlightenment project that we've built than there is to criticize. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm open and willing to, to look at critiques, but I think the core of the country is this Enlightenment ideal. Um, right. And again, about other countries, the reason why you want to be intolerant of reactionaries is if you look at to, at other countries, um, I pick up on something that Barrington Moore talked about. He famously wrote about the evolution from, you know, historic societies to the modern age, and and he said there's kind of like countries come through that to modernity, and they either are very favorable to democracy or they're open to the, you know, the call of authoritarians. In Latin America, um, and he, he said famously, the, the, the fate of the landed elite is the key. So I take that seriously and I say, look, our landed elite were the slave owners. Um, we never eliminated them in the way we should have. And therefore, the ideology of, 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 um, of Southern racism you know, has continued in American society and is vividly in front of us to this day, as we've seen with the Black Lives Matter protests after uh, George Floyd's killing, et cetera. Um, so, so Bertha Moore's thought was this, that liberal democracy is in trouble when it is opposed by the landed elite and the right wing of capital. When those two forces come together, they can block it. And that happened in Latin America. Um, right. you know, most of Latin America over time, again and again, Chile was one of the few places where a democratic country was, was able to get deep roots. In France, what happens to the landed elite? They're eliminated by 
the French Revolution. In England, the commercial class and the landed elite kind of intermarry, and, and, and liberalism comes about slowly. A liberal democratic country comes about slowly, and gradually workers get the right to vote, etc. But by the time of Churchill, somebody like Churchill is deeply, you know, stoutly opposed to what Hitler's doing and is not going to compromise, not going to make a deal with Hitler, to his great credit. In Germany, however, the Prussian um, Junkers, the landed elite there, they are never challenged. Their power is never broken. They hate the Weimar Republic. And if you read the new book that's out, um, uh, Hitler's First 100 Days, you know, Hitler, you know, he never gets close to 50% in a regular election. He goes from like 2% to the early 30s. And then the conservatives on his side and the, the authoritarians, they make a deal with him, which allows him to become chancellor. Um, and the younger landed elite are part of that. Okay. So hmm. that opens a door to really so, and, stuff. And you're basically saying that happened in 1964 in I'm the United saying, States, yeah, the landed I'm, elite. Yeah. I'm saying that in our case, those two wires crossed and our landed yeah. elite are dead and gone. But that ideology that is not just racist, it's, it's an acceptance of, of a more authoritarian perspective on society, right? Yeah. You've got mm-hmm. a, you have a court, Pew and other, you know, surveys have done studies where they ask people, um, how, what do you think if we, you know, did away with Congress and elections, would you be okay with that? And a quarter of the public says yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's other, another piece of scholarship I mentioned, uh, deep into the book is about kind of some people are just wired for kind of an authoritarian approach to politics because they fear diversity. Conservatives who are strongly conservatives don't want change to happen rapidly, but reactionaries are fearful of diversity and a cosmopolitan society, and they need to be soothed. They need to be reassured that things aren't going to get out of control, but they're triggered by somebody like Trump. So the Biden rhetoric is trying to say, look, we know there's some people they can't do anything about it. They're just born this way is the argument from the political psychologist. Mm-hmm. They can be good democratic citizens, but they have to be reassured. But if there's a person like Trump or another, you know, I call Trump an elected authoritarian. You have somebody who is going to use all those weapons to trigger people's racist fears and, and, um, and fears of others uh, to get power. If you can trigger that and get a lot of people activated, um, and and the, and the other approaches, you you've got to, you know, make get rhetoric out of that ditch and, and bring it back to normal. And so that I think again, that's what Biden's trying to do. He's trying to shift rhetoric back and politics back so that conservatives can reclaim the party. So I I do think the reactionaries have to be chased out of leadership of of the Republican Party. They so let's, so let me ask you this question. Eliminated. They're not going to be eliminated by, you know, there's, the Koch brothers are still going to exist, people like that, and the, yeah. and the you know, the alt-right folks are going to exist. But a lot of people that are voting for Trump, I think the business class is, has to, some of the business class has to wake up and say, this is, this election's about more than just, you know, lower taxes and less regulation. There's a lot more at stake this time. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, so 
I was going to ask you something earlier. I might as well ask it to, yeah. because you mentioned about, uh, you know, that there was no uh, reign of terror and like the liberalism didn't go that far. I'm wondering now if, if, if you uh, wish there were some sort of Yankee Robespierre. <laughs> well, I think, I think right now we're in a, we're in a reign of terror from, from the reactionary side that, mm-hmm. that my reading of it, if you want to use the French revolution as a motif, right? Gingrich starts, and he's outflanked. What happens in a true revolution is that moderates are continually outflanked by people more extreme. That's just the dynamic yeah. of a revolution, right? So I thought the interesting case here was you get a Paul Ryan and a Ted and a, and a, and a Cruz. They're different personality types, but they're deeply united by a vision of trying to get rid of the New Deal state, to roll back the New Deal state as much as possible, to undermine its funding, et cetera. Um, but then one of their, <coughs> pardon me, one of their allies, Eric Cantor, is purged himself by a more right-wing Tea Party type. And Eric Cantor is like number two in the house. He's going to be speaker, and all of a sudden, somebody that's unknown takes him out in the in the Republican primary because Cantor dares to speak to Democrats. Right? Mm-hmm. And then you go from that to Ted Cruz. You know, doing better than anybody else except Trump in the in the two sixteen presidential run, and Cruz is a really strong libertarian, but Trump outflanks them all by being crazier, by being the total revolutionary who wants to attack all the institutions and all the norms and just break everything, and that outflanks. You know, so Ryan and Cruz are totally outflanked by that, and so we're to this point where if it's if Trump's our ropes pier on the right, you know, all liberal norms and institutions, including the constitution and including the very concept of democratic elections are trembling right now because he's attacked them all. Um, so, so where do you see uh, America going at this, at this point, this interregnum? I mean, this, I mean, th- this interview is going to be around a long time, but right now when we're talking, we're just weeks away from the election. Yeah. Yeah. We have the elections a week out. Yeah. I, I, you know, to get out of the interregnum, I, I think you have to have a three 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 exits from the interregnum mm-hmm. in a simple form, right? The the liberals win big, and Biden might do that. It might be like a Reagan type situation where they sweep in some Senate seats and he wins the electoral college by quite substantial, and then the journalists are all saying, "Oh my God, this is a big election rejection of Trump." Number two. It's a small election and one side wins or one side doesn't. I mean, Biden wins or Trump wins by a narrow thing and then we're stuck in the irregnum, but Trump will then use that to solidify his power. So it's very bad for the country. Or on the reactionary side, maybe not this election, but another time the right really solidifies its power with a big election. Mm -hmm. And we, and we, and we say, you know, we're, we're, and from my point of view, we're going to reject the founders and we're going to go for this illiberal reactionary motif. Yeah. And so I think the choice right now is like, can, can the Democrats win? And just as important, can they win big? That would help us escape this because politicians, you know, they're creatures of the need for public adoration and, you know, votes. And they listen to where things are going and they will adjust. Um, so if the Republican leadership says, mm, this was not a good idea, we knew it wasn't, but we went with him anyway. 
and they scamper back and the Lincoln Project purges as many of the right wingers as they can. And it'd be interesting, I don't know, because we're, we're set up for two parties. What do you do? I mean, one, the conservatives retake the party. That seems difficult right now. Number two, does the, um, the Lincoln Project types, do they try to set up a third party that becomes like the Whig party, you know, or becomes like the, Re- the Republican party during the Whig period when, when Lincoln comes to power? Do we actually have enough of a push for a, a real third party that, that becomes the second party? And we right. won't know that for a decade, probably. But I, I normally like to ask um, our authors when we finish uh, what message you'd like to leave your readers with. I, I think you've kind of said it, you know, in bits and pieces throughout our interview. But if we were to summarize it, what what would you like to leave your readers with? Um, that I'd say that the the coalition that's dominating the Republican Party now, this um, you know white privilege, you know, paren, uh, racist attitude of, uh, that we want to, we want to keep, uh, privilege for white males, uh, above everybody else combined with, uh, a right wing economic class that wants to minimize and, and, uh, destabilize and, uh, you know, shrink the federal government that that's a, you know, that's a very dangerous combination because of what those two things, what those two elements of our society can do when they have power together. Um, so we, I think we're in a dangerous moment that, that a lot of people don't understand the danger that faces us. Is this kind of authoritarian? What Trump, I guess, put it this way, Trump has opened an authoritarian lane in American politics. And I want people to see that. It's not just Trump, you know, it's, it's the many who support him. It's the, Republican political establishment that it continually enables him. That's our deeper trouble. And that opens the road for somebody like Trump, who probably would be much different personality wise and maybe more shrewd and more of a chess player. Um, another crack at trying to establish an authoritarian America. Maybe Trump does it, but maybe another person would have a crack at it too. So that's, that's the deep <laughs> message of like, be awake. You know? Right. Right. Well, um, are you working uh, on any other projects right now that you'd like our audience to know, or like where can they, um, you know, find your work, uh, a, a website, or um, they can they can find my work. Um, um, it's you can go to my author website, kevincoleary.com. So okay, kevincoleary.com, all one word. And uh, I haven't decided on a new project yet. I'm still, um, you know involved in promoting this one. Um, mm-hmm. and usually books take me a while to, to say yes to, I, I typically, um, write journalism and teach and, um, you know, and, and then when something really has to really grab me. so I've got two books out, saving democracy and this one, uh, Madison sorrow. And I don't, I <laughs> too, yeah. too, too soon to think about what a next book project. Yeah. Will be. Yeah. No, no. Well, thanks so much for this interview, Kevin. It's been very informative and enjoyable. Oh, thank you, Kirk. I really enjoyed it as well. Good, good, good. Well, once again, the book is Madison's Sorrow, Today's War on the Founders and America's Liberal Ideal. And we've been speaking to the author, Kevin C. O'Leary. Thanks also to you, our listeners. 
make sure to sign up for our notifications so that you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in the future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you.